Recovery Elevator, episode 184. I went back for my next visit to the doctor, and I said, well, I, I stopped drinking, and because I heard it, you know, I read that it has some interaction with the liver, it puts stress on the liver, and my doctor said, well, you can probably have a couple of drinks, you know, uh, each night, and I thought, all right, you know. <laughs> Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, it has been 3.9 years since my last drink. On today's podcast, we've got a gentleman named Paul. He's from St. Paul, Minnesota. He's been sober for 28 days, and he talks about anxiety both before and after the interview. In fact, I'm going to read an email that I got from Paul after we hear from Paul. That's a lot of Pauls in that statement. St. Paul, I'm Paul, he's Paul. What a great name. Guys, I just launched a free five-day video recovery course, and I've had some great feedback on it. Sign up, and you get a video delivered to your inbox each day. I also want to plant the seed for the Nashville Social. This takes place February 22nd to the 24th in, well, you guessed it, Nashville, Tennessee. Put in your vacation request forms now. This is going to be a blast. It's a social. There's also going to be workshops. We're going to recover as a community and have a lot of fun doing it. Okay, let's get started. I'm excited about today's podcast episode because it's a good one. Here it goes. Science increasingly makes the case for God. I've heard about this article before, so I did some searching and I feel I need to share it with you. I'll cover how the greatest miracle of all time is that you exist, and then I'll tie this into addiction at the end. So I checked the stats on downloads, and if my goal was strictly to get high download numbers so then I could get more sponsors for the podcast, then I wouldn't be covering this topic today. This is the higher power topic, the one that makes a lot of us restless, the one that will probably make a couple hundred listeners hit the stop button right about now. But it's my duty, and I feel compelled to share this with you because this is a glimpse of the holy grail in recovery, turning your life, your will, yourself, over to a power greater than yourself. And here's a compelling argument written by a bunch of Catholic priests. No, I'm just kidding. This is a compelling argument made for a higher power made by scientists. The article, Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God, was published in the Wall Street Journal on December 25, 2014. Since then, the article has garnered over 600,000 Facebook shares and more than 9,250 comments, making it the most popular article in Wall Street Journal history. And before I go any further, Mike, who lives in Hong Kong, who does the show notes, is going to put a link to this article in the show notes. So go to the website on your podcast player and you can read this article. Okay, back to the article. In 1966, Time Magazine ran a cover story asking, is God dead? Many have accepted the cultural narrative that he's obsolete, that as science progresses, there is less need for a God to explain the universe. Yet, as it turns out, that the rumors of God's death were premature. More amazing is that the relatively recent case for his existence comes from a surprising place, science itself. Here's the story. The same year, Time featured the now-famous headline, the astronomer Carl Sagan announced that there were two important criteria for a planet to support life. That criteria is, it needs to have the right kind of star and a planet the right distance from that star. Given the roughly octillion, 
This is a one followed by 27 zeros, number of planets in the universe. There should have been about septillion. This is one followed by 24 zeros of planets in the universe capable of supporting life. With such spectacular odds, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, a large, expensive collection of private and publicly funded projects launched in the 1960s, was sure to turn up something soon. Scientists listened with a vast radio telescopic network for signals that resembled coded intelligence. But as years passed, the silence from the rest of the universe was deafening. Congress defunded many of these problems, including SETI, in 1993. But the search continues with private funds. As of 2014, researchers have discovered precisely zip, nada, and more nada, followed by more nothing. So what happened? As our knowledge of the universe increased, it became clear that there were far more factors necessary for life than Sagan had initially supposed. His two parameters, one was you need the right kind of star and the right type of planet a good distance from that star. These parameters from two grew from 10, then to 20, and then to 50. So the number of potentially life-supporting planets decreased accordingly. The number dropped to a few thousand planets and then kept on plummeting. As factors continued to be discovered, the number of possible planets that could contain life hit zero and kept going. In other words, the odds turned against any planet in the universe supporting life, including this one. Probability and mathematical equations said that even we shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be podcasting right now. Today, there are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life. Every single one which must be perfectly met, or the whole thing falls apart. Without a massive planet like Jupiter nearby, whose gravity will draw away asteroids, a thousand times as many asteroids would hit the Earth's surface. The odds against life in this universe are simply astonishing. Yet here we are, not only existing, but we are talking about existing. I'm talking to you guys about how Third Eye Blind is the best band of all time. I don't have a scientific article backing that statement up, but I'm sure Carl Sagan will be writing one soon. So what can account for it? Can every one of those many parameters have been perfect by accident? At what point is it fair to admit that science suggests that we cannot be the result of random forces? Doesn't assuming that an intelligence created these perfect conditions require far less faith than believing that a life-sustaining Earth just happened to beat the inconceivable odds to come into being? Let's talk about these inconceivable odds. The fine-tuning necessary for life to exist on a planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist at all. For example, astrophysicists now know that the values of the four fundamental forces, gravity, the electromagnetic force, and the strong and the weak nuclear forces, were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. Alter any one value in the universe could not exist. For instance, if the ratio between the nuclear strong force and the electromagnetic force had been off by the tiniest fraction of the tiniest fraction, by even one part in one, followed by 17 zeros, then no stars could have ever formed at all. Yeah, feel free to gulp on that one. Multiply that single parameter by all the other necessary conditions, and the odds against the universe existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it all just happened actually defies common sense. This would be like tossing up a quarter and having it land on heads 
10 quintillion times in a row. Theoretical physicist Paul Davies has said that the appearance of design is overwhelming. In Oxford, professor Dr. John Lennox has said, the more we get to know about the universe, the more the hypothesis that there is a creator gains more credibility. So the greatest miracle of all time, without any close seconds, is the universe. And you are part of this universe. This is the miracle of all miracles. So there's the article. Oh wait, there's a correction, guys. An earlier version of this article underestimated the number of zeros that I read during those stats. How wild is that? So how is this related to addiction? You've probably heard me say on this podcast that you can't do this alone. You need a community with a community leader. This ultimate community leader is not the person chairing the AA meeting on Saturday morning or the guy leading the recovery elevator retreat to Peru this October, but it's the ultimate power, the ultimate creator, that light inside you that's always been there, the miracle. So you've probably heard in recovery, and if you've been to an AA meeting, you've definitely heard this because seven out of the 12 steps reference this higher power. You've probably heard that you need to turn your life over to higher power. The first part of this podcast episode is to show you, to tell you by scientists that yes, there is a power out there greater than yourself that defines all probability of chance. And the second part is how do you know if you've turned your life over to a greater power? Well, as Eckhart Tolle says in The Power of Now, you'll know because you'll stop asking. You'll know because you'll feel it. So if this concept is nebulous or you don't think you're there yet, don't worry. I personally fought this for a long time, a really long time, even for a couple years while in sobriety. So no matter where you're at in your recovery journey, it's important to keep this message in the back of your mind. Because God, the higher power, the creator, is also in the back of your mind at all times. Now before we hear from Paul, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe RE meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Paul, how are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? 28 days, going on 29. Nice job. Congratulations, Paul. Thank you. Yeah. Another thing I want to mention, great name, by the way. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Our moms did something right. A lot of things <laughs> right, but uh, started us off. That's a big tailwind. Great name. That's right. Yeah. Before we get any further, Paul, give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Okay. Well, I'm I'm uh, 67 years old. I live in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. I'm actually in St. Paul. There's Twin City. Also called the Twin Cities. I uh, am retired. I just retired about uh, end of March. And I have a wife. I got two kids, two grandchildren. Uh, what I do for fun, I'm a. I have a internet radio show that I I do once a month, and I also have a internet radio station that I 
kind of neglected right now, but I need to. I enjoy doing that. Also, I like cooking. I'm trying some new recipes lately. What else? Well, I like films. And did I say I was married? Yes, I'm married. I have a beautiful wife right now. My third wife. Third one is the best. Third one's a choice or whatever it is. So, Paul, anyway. I'm still working on my first there. Hold your horses, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And otherwise, I am kind of an introvert. So I, I actually, as far as what I like to do for fun, I don't really mind uh, spending time by myself. So that's I think that's about it for now. Paul, this sounds exciting. It's, it, it, it's, it's clear you're on a new chapter of your life. You retired mm-hmm. in end of March. Mm-hmm. June first, sobriety date. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is uh, this is exciting and it's exciting, right? And I'm sure you've right. you've you've played the tape in your head, like yeah, this is exciting. However, <laughs> the first couple words that Paul said to me when I answered the Skype phone call was, you know, I'm, there's a little bit of anxiety underneath everything, and that's fine. And I'm, Paul, that's awesome. You mentioned it. We're going to cover that in depth in this podcast episode. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really cool opportunity because anxiety it's prevalent. It's prevalent mm-hmm. while we're drinking. Um, it, for me, it was a lot better after quitting drinking, but it was still there. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll, we're going to get there. And thank, I want us to say right off the bat, thank you for being open and transparent. Mm, thank you. Yeah. So we're going to get to the anxiety thing, mm-hmm. but give listeners a little background about your drinking. Describe your drinking habits, you know, how much you drank, perhaps you know, when you started, what that was like, and then the progression into when it was not normal drinking. Um, did you ever put any rules in the place to try to quit? And also try to give us date, like ages or dates. Sure. Actually, I've been working on a timeline, which I don't have a real precise one yet because uh, I am I have some really curiosities about that. But if I go back to my early, early days when I was in my 20s, I, I don't I think I drank like other people. I think, you know, there were some days when I would uh, go out with uh, my friends and, and drink and to excess, you know, and then come back and next day, next morning, of course, the you know, the, the usual, well, I'm never going to do that shit again, right? So, and, and then, of course, you know, three or four o'clock rolls around and, you know, I'm ready to roll again. So I, I think maybe I did, a, you know, excessive drinking, but I don't know whether that's uh, normal for that age or not. So I did that for a while and got married. My first wife uh, kind of didn't do that as much. And then fast forward to, I, I don't think I really started drinking too heavily until probably, uh, maybe more recently, within the last 15 years or so. And so I found myself uh, kind of experimenting with uh, mixing drinks, you know, the kind of a culture that probably, uh, let's see, timeline on that, probably around 2003, something like that. And uh, martini culture, partially that had to do with the um, radio sta- uh, the radio show that I did, do, still do, uh, but the culture is kind of the cocktail culture, and I, I, found, I found myself falling in with that culture for some dumb reason. So, so I did a little bit of drinking then, but not, I don't think, to excess until I would say probably maybe the last um, 2010 or 2009. And I should say, I'm not looking for sympathy here. My, my second wife, I was married to her for 30 years. She died of breast cancer. When I did that, when I took, I ended up being a caretaker for her the last year and a half or so of her life, and and I used to really kind of try to put the pain away of that. Uh, you know, sure. I, at at the end of each day, I'd kind of get her kind of safely tucked away, and then I would <laughs> go into the, my sunroom and uh, you know uh, mix a heavy drink or two, and and uh, I did that for probably a year or so, and then after she died, I continued on with that. The morning process is interesting. <laughs> mm. uh, tried, I think I try to subdue the pain. I uh, do uh, uh, self-medicating with, with alcohol, I think. 
So I did that for quite a while, and uh, maybe a year or so, and uh, finally uh, decided I didn't really want to live alone by myself, rambling around the house talking to myself. So I ventured out in the Match.com world, found myself my third wife, and I, I really, when we started dating, I, I found that I didn't I didn't really drink that much. I I gotta say maybe hiding it, I'm not really sure, but I didn't really find I didn't feel compelled to, you know. But eventually, we did get married, and eventually, I started. It started creeping back into my life, and within the last four or five years, what I found myself doing was drinking after work when I get home before my wife got home. I remember distinctly the first time I did this was on recommendation or not recommendation suggestion of a friend of mine at work. He said, "You know, a beer really cold beer really tastes good at the end of the day." You know, mm-hmm. even though I just work in an office, <laughs> there's no, you know, it's not like I'm laboring in the fields or anything. But, <laughs> but. Uh, Anyway, uh, so I, I, I thought, that's a great idea. I'll try that. And uh, so I had I drank a beer when I got home on an empty stomach and uh, felt a buzz right away. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have another one. And then meanwhile, I had took my dogs out for a walk and I'm kind of wandering around, walking around the neighborhood, you know, <laughs> with a little bit of buzz on. So I, I kept that up for a while and I kind of moved over to um, whiskey. I, I used to drink Jameson. So I would Instead of beers, I would slam down a couple of Jameson on the rocks and do the same sort of thing and, and try to keep it for my wife. And, and so by the time she got home, I would appear to have had just, just be casually drinking a cocktail. And then, but re- in reality, I had maybe two or three drinks and was already well on my way to being a little bit of clouds. That was a habit for quite a while up until I retired. End of March, and, right, you said? End of March, yeah, right. And the new game was, well... I got the whole day to myself. Well, I, I'm not going to drink during the day because I got I still got stuff to do, even though I'm retired. So I would say, well, I'm not going to drink. And I've heard this before too. <laughs> uh, it was very familiar. So I say, well, I'm not going to drink until after four o'clock. You know. So. Oh, there we go. Yeah, right. We have heard so, that before. <laughs> I know. Right? So uh, and also what I heard is people kind of keeping an eye on the clock is when they could start. And uh, so I found myself doing that. And then again, you know, the whole the the thing was hiding the drinking, uh, concealing it from my wife, because uh, I imagine, well, I don't know what the reason, I just don't figure that out, <laughs> but at any rate, it's nothing to be proud of. So that that's what it was, uh, that's what it's been, and until recently, I decided to quit, so, um, and I've quit a few times, you know, uh, three or four times, and last, I tried to, uh, yeah, I guess I tried to, <laughs> the last three, a uh, couple of years, I've tried this, so, so that that's pretty much been my uh, drinking habits have gotten worse, you know, gotten, uh, well, I, I guess progressively worse, you know, so. That's also um, something we hear all the time on yeah. this podcast. In fact, every interview, there's a yeah. progression. And some people, you know, the, the people who are on this podcast are the lucky ones to see it. Some people yep. can't see the progression. So good job to recognize it. And in 28 yep. days, was it something that would happen or was it like, look, I'm done? Well, let's see. I, I was thinking about that. I, I could really go philosophical about this, but but as far as the physical thing, active drinking, actually I trace it back to November 2016. So on the election night, I drank a lot, and um, and then and then uh, I think a lot of people did. <laughs> yeah, I know. And so I had a so every four months I have a a diabetic check with my doctor. So the next day I had a diabetic uh, appointment with my doctor, which you know I, I don't know what I was thinking. I'm going to show up, you know still hung over. At any rate, uh, my blood pressure was high. And so I thought, well, where's this coming from? So I did a little troubleshooting, you know, I thought, oh, well, this is alcohol induced probably. So I, I got a little bit of a shock there. 
And uh, but my doctor prescribed medication for that, and I thought, okay, well, I don't have to worry about the drinking. <laughs> this is just stupid logic. So that went on for a while. Also, uh, with my diabetes, my my doctor prescribed um, another medication later on. You know, maybe six months later. I, I don't I don't have a precise timeline right now. And uh, I was concerned then because there's interactions with the medication with excessive drinking. And so I read the instructions so that well, you know, I've got to stop. So I did. I stopped for about three months. And then uh, I went back to, for my next visit to the doctor, and I said, well, I, I stopped drinking, and because I heard it, you know, I read that it has some interaction with the liver, it puts stress on the liver. And my doctor said, well, you can probably have a couple of drinks, you know, uh, each night. And I thought, all right, you know. So, you know, so <laughs> He's got I just, an expensive degree on the wall. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I just, I, of course, didn't have just a couple of drinks. I just ramped it back up. So. Mm-hmm. So that went. So I went through a few uh, cycles that where I quit and started up. You know, over the last um, couple of years, you know, from from November 2016 until June or you know end of May. So what really triggered this last one was I, I went to you know I just went to go see uh, an Al Jardine concert at one of our local uh, jazz clubs because uh, I like the Beach Boys. But I had I thought well I'll just have a martini you know well okay we well, you know how it goes so I then I had another martini <laughs> and then so the concert was great yeah, boy, uh, boy that'll be the day just kidding <laughs> isn't that a Beach Boy song no no, no. <laughs> but uh, sorry anyway, born in the eighties so we went home and then I thought well I could go for another martini you know so went had another martini and then my wife went to bed and I had probably four or five Jamesons on the rocks you know switch it up a little bit and next morning I woke up hungover of course mm-hmm. and but also uh something i don't think i felt before was just like shame you know i thought oh you know what have you done what have you done so i lay in bed there for a while thinking about it and finally got up and did my normal routine with walking the dogs and all that kind of stuff and was thinking about it and i'm not real precise that would have been like the 29th of me i don't have the i think i might have still had another drink that evening and then the next day i quit and I uh, kind of deferred pouring out all my liquor and stuff because I had, my in-laws are coming over to help move furniture. And I, anyway, that's a long story. So I did, I did pour it all out. And I thought, well, I've done this before, but I, it, it was something different this time. It's going to sound kind of corny. I think it's kind of like a guiding hand somewhere. No, <laughs> no, 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 helping no. me do this, you know. I poured out so, my last drink and I know how that feeling, it's something yeah. different. And maybe just try to explain that a little more. Well, I, like I said, I'd done it before with determination. And then, you know, <laughs> and of course, the liquor store is easy enough to walk into. I don't really know what made it different this time. You know, I, I can't explain it. So that's why I say it's it's kind of like um, like another, I don't want to say subconscious, because I think subconscious is the thing that <laughs> makes me drink, but or wants me to drink. But at any rate, I, I can't, it's hard for me to explain it, but there was uh, uh, something different. And I, I guess I go back to, it, it was like, when I quit smoking, I quit smoking back in 83 or something like that. And it was the same sort of thing. Once I had made up my mind, I was going to quit smoking. I did it. And and a bit of irony, I think I may have mentioned when I wrote my introduction on the cafe, uh, RE Cafe, I thought it was ironic because when I quit smoking, I cited the way that alcoholics deal with drinking is you can't just have one drink. And I viewed that as I can't just have one cigarette. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same thing. So I'm kind of banking on, I, I use, you know, tools that alcoholics use for to to apply to cigarette smoking and I'm using my cigarette smoking you know how I how I quit smoking to help me quit drinking so I thought that was a 
I think it's kind of cool, actually. So, but it's a that's why I mean it. It's the same sort of. It's still an addiction. So, and I'm dealing with it the same way. So, it seems like it's the same sort of thing. It's the same feeling as I had when I quit smoking. It's like determination. Okay, this is I'm doing it now, and I I can't explain it any other way. So, I like how you use the word a guided hand pull. It was September sixth, two thousand fourteen. I was camping, and I had a moment of clarity. I knew if I finished my drink, it might never stop. And I just dumped it out. I said goodbye to everybody at the camping trip, got in my car and I drove home and that was it. And I, it's, it's weird. It's hard to explain, but there was a moment of clarity, perhaps a guided hand, perhaps the moment of clarity. I don't know, but good job. And, and Paul, you and I, besides the alcohol thing, it's a huge thing in common. We have another thing in common. There was a time in our life where we needed a hug, a huge (laughs) hug. Yeah, And I think we both found that in alcohol. For me, I got my heart broken by a Dutch girl at the age of 21. And I think it sounds like you said it when, when, your, uh, when your second wife passed away with cancer. And that mm-hmm. I'm so sorry to go through that. Yeah, you know, one thing I, I learned also, that one thing that's different about this and when I quit before is I shared this with my wife and my kids. I have two adult children. My wife pointed out to me, I can't remember how she said it but she says you know do you think maybe your childhood and your my second marriage was kind of an abusive marriage i mean i i love my second wife but it was still an abusive relationship verbally abusive so i i think part of that goes back to i'm still this is one thing i want to do with kind of journaling but i my dad was an alcoholic he he was uh, verbally abusive to me and and my second wife was um I found out later was a borderline personality had borderline personality disorder, so there'd be storms that would just blow up in front of my face. I know mm-hmm. what what happened, you know. What did it, I miss? A, right, it was the same sort of you know. Uh, it, it took me a really really long time to figure out, hey, this is not me. So, uh, almost my entire life. So, but I think you're right there about the hug. I I'm still kind of exploring that and trying to figure out that's why i mentioned before and i thought well the mechanical thing of stopping drinking is one thing but where did where did the drinking problem really start well i think i think and not not to whine about it but i think it went back to my childhood of uh, uh, verbal use and 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 feeling learning to have low self-esteem and and uh, not feeling too good about myself so i i think that's what it is but, paul uh, you're not whining at all in fact that's the whole point of this journey is because we've heard the drinking is but a symptom we drink to cover up a void and internal pain. And you got to go back as far as you got to go back to find it. And, um, there was issues in my childhood that were, that were tough, but I, I know that at age 21, that's what tipped me over the fence. I got my heart broken. I needed a hug mm-hmm. and I found that hug in yeah. liquid format, <laughs> ethanol yeah. with a couple additives added to it. And I got a huge hug for like five to six years and then the hug stopped working. Yeah. 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 You were getting back to the anxiety part. The thing that that alcohol did for me was I would be able to do that kind of a, you know, a sigh. <laughs> I'd feel like kind of wound up. And if I had a, a couple of drinks in me right away, then for a moment I would have that, that feeling. I'm starting to actually feel that sigh now. Like, like right naturally. now? Naturally. Today well, or, or like right now? It, it, periodically. I mean, it, it, I just noticed it kind of coming over me. Oh, I don't, I can do it, you know, so I think the anxiety is kind of wearing off. I'm, I'm hopeful about, but anyway, that, that's, that's what I use alcohol for. That's the most immediate symptom anyway was that. So I think this is a great time to cover anxiety Yeah, and anxiety is, is basically, that's what caused me to stop drinking. I had a panic, panic attack in Spain. Anxiety is the absolute worst. Went to the hospital, thought I was having a heart attack. 
and alcohol did a good job of squashing that anxiety. However, mm-hmm. double-edged sword, when you sober up after a binge, get the anxiety to go away, it comes back twofold. It's twice yeah. as bad. Um, anxiety is what caused me to quit drinking, and anxiety all, almost killed me at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, nope. yeah, actually describe the anxiety you're feeling right now. Maybe not at this um, moment, but like when 28 days of sobriety, like just, just describe it. Well, it's as if something bad's going to happen. <laughs> you know, uh, there's no reason for it. There's no rational reason I can think of. I've got a great life, I, and I can't think of anything that would cause me the anxiety, but it just feels like, mm, you know, I'm waiting for something bad to happen, and, and it's unknown, and that's the best I can describe it, I guess. It's just, a, I don't know, an unease, not being able to just do that, be completely relaxed, you know, so... And Paul, I don't have an expensive piece of paper on my wall saying I'm a, I'm a licensed <laughs> professional, medical professional. But the good news is, Paul, is with 28 days, you're still rocking the post-acute withdrawal symptoms. And I'm going to say yeah. post-acute withdrawal healing symptoms. Is yeah. There is an answer to this acute anxiety after drinking. Is your systems are coming back online. Sometimes it overshoots. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it undershoots. Mm-hmm. And then, <laughs> and I can only speak from experience, and then I got to a point where about six months to a year, right? I, and when the anxiety came back, it was telling me something. And I wasn't ready to listen to that anxiety for a couple of years after that. So mm-hmm. let's try to work with this. What do you think the anxiety is telling you right now? And you kind of just mentioned it, like something in the future, which is not in this moment right now, mm-hmm. but something in the future is is not right. Let's just, what do you think? Boy, it's, it's, I don't know if it's in the future as much as I think is unraveling my past a little bit to figure out why I'm here like this, if that makes any sense. I, I can't anticipate, I, I can't imagine, I mean, this is going to, you can't ever see what's in the future, but it's hard for me to imagine rationally anything bad that's going to happen, except, you know, there are things in life that happen, but there's nothing out there looming. I guess the most tangible thing I could think of was a few months ago, I I was uh, going to go on a trip with my wife to Ireland. So for that moment, I had stopped drinking. And so I had a lot of anxiety about the trip because of that. How am I going to turn down drinks in Ireland of all places, you know? And so I worried about it quite a bit. And this is kind of funny, kind of not funny. And then I started drinking again. I thought, well, problem solved. I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but <laughs> That's one way to get rid of it, I guess. <laughs> I know. But then... More recently, you know, I stopped drinking again, and with more assistance, I thought, "Oh, I think I can handle this." So, you know, maybe it is. Uh, now that I'm talking about it, maybe it is this anticipation of, you know, how am I going to deal with the you know, social aspects of um, of not drinking? You know, maybe that's it. I, I I'm having a lot of trouble putting my finger on it right now. And Paul, I think a lot of this, like I said, the the post acute withdrawal symptoms, they will level out, but mm-hmm. you might still have anxiety after that. And what I found is when I had anxiety that it was based on conflict, that I had developed these people-pleasing techniques. And so I would mm-hmm. get anxiety when my people-pleasing techniques were challenged to say, wait a second, this mm-hmm. skill set is not working as well as I thought when people were mad at me. And about mm-hmm. 10 episodes ago, I had a lot of people mad at me for coming out about my experience in Costa Rica. And it was mm-hmm. actually through that experience, I was able to say, whoa, my anxiety is due to my people-pleasing techniques based on systems I built in childhood. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've worked with therapists. I have a spiritual coach right now. And I'm like, I have never been on more stable, sober footing than this moment right now. It, it took me a long time to get here. You know, day yeah. 13 or 12, 1300 in sobriety, but you're on the right track, Paul. And there's no yeah. finish line. Like there's no, once you get to the source of your anxiety, 
you'll be happy. Like that's a dangerous game to play too. <laughs> right. Um, uh, we just need to yeah. focus on like the, the now and it's easier said than done. But I just right. did an episode that just says the key to liberation is in the now mm-hmm. right now. And it's easier to say like, look, you're, this trip's not here yet. The future's not here yet. Way easier said than done. But in meditation, like that's, that's where I've been going lately. Um, mm-hmm. but let's talk about how you got 28 days, Paul, which is awesome, man. Nice job. <laughs> Seriously. Nice oh, job. Yeah. And how'd you do it? Well, something I did differently this time was, well, actually, you know, I, when I first started thinking I had a, a problem, I did do some research on it. And I stumbled across some, an article that Roger Ebert had written about his own problem. And I was pretty inspired by that. And then I kind of put it aside, you know, went through a few cycles of drinking, not drinking. But more recently, I did more research. I thought, well, this time I got to do something different. So I did more research and luckily found out I more resources online than I thought. Like RE is great. I love the podcasts. I love RE Cafe. I listened to um, The Sober Guy a couple times yet uh, so far. But I, I right now I get the most out of the RE podcasts. I um, had looked in when I first, before I found out about some of the, you know, podcasts and stuff, I did run into uh, Smart Recovery, which seems to be fitting more to my my style of recovery. But I'm I'm not going to rule out AA. There's meetings I think tomorrow I think for Smart Recovery, which I've been kind of putting off till I get back from the trip to Ireland. But also another thing that I put off, I put off going to these meetings because I had not talked talked to my wife yet. This is going to sound kind of silly, but I felt like I had to sneak off to a recovery meeting, you know. <laughs> and so, but now I don't have to worry about that because I it's out in the open and everything. So so I'm looking into that. One one other thing I thought about doing uh, is is I a lot of a lot of feelings are bubbling up now uh, that I had not anticipated. And um, so I thought I'd start keeping a journal for myself and start writing this stuff down. See if I, It's like a big puzzle to me right now to figure out how I got here. And I don't know if I'll ever figure it out, but it just seems like I'd like to get it down on paper. And, and uh, that would help me maybe have stuff kind of pop out at me. So well, actually, Paul, I, I skipped something <laughs> real important earlier. With, yeah. the, with the anxiety is everything has to be felt <laughs> feelings from age one, two, three, everything has to yeah. be felt. And a lot of that anxiety could be just that your body is only going to allow you to feel what you can feel and ha- t- handle and tolerate. But mm-hmm. some of that stuff could be years of emotions for that just have been squashed and coming up. Boy, it, it, that's one thing I have really noticed is that I've <clears throat> had some thoughts of my childhood and both good and bad, you know, that come, come up. And I just, I don't know whether the alcohol pushes it down. I don't know what the science is on that, but I just noticed that some of it is popping up now. So, and I don't mind it. It's sometimes emotional, sometimes not, but it's just kind of uh, interesting, I think. So, yeah, but, uh, absolutely. And let me, <clears throat> let me ask you a question about the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in an optimistic light, what's, what's on your bucket list, Paul? It's, I, I know from like outside looking in, I'm like, wow, he quit mm-hmm. drinking. He's retired. This is so awesome. It is. But let's, yeah, it, it is. It is. But, but at the I'm same still time, you, anxiety though, right? Yeah. yeah. But your feelings are justified. There's nothing <laughs> yeah. wrong with your anxiety. And you mentioned yeah. the word shame. I, I really want to avoid you saying like this Paul recovery guy said I should be happy. Right. Don't worry about that. Like if you're feeling anxiety, like just roll with it, just sit in a chair oh, yeah. and be like, Hey, this is it. This is what's supposed to happen right now. But, yeah. uh, you know, what, what do, what would you like to accomplish in, on your, in your, on your bucket list? Well, so one of my bucket list things was to go to Ireland, which I got out of the way. Nice. I shouldn't say get out of the way. <laughs> oh yeah. So Damn, for checklist. <laughs> Damn it. What's next? Uh, no, I want to, I'd like to, for some reason I'd like to visit Paris. So there's some traveling. I would like to learn how to do horseback riding. 
which um, I know you're allergic to them, so that wouldn't be on your list. <laughs> so just going to mention I, that, Paul. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for going there. Yeah, I've had uh, some really. I have a couple guitars that are almost like new because I haven't played them very much. Actually, they're not like new, but uh, I I want to I want to take some guitar lessons. I've just plunked around with them. I'm not too bad on it, but um, I'd like to get more structure on that. So that's one thing I'd like to do. Let's see what else. I can't think of anything right now, <laughs> but there's more, I'm sure. Well, I'm gonna, I actually want to put more work into my, um, I've got this kind of dormant internet radio station. I'd like to put more work into that. So. Yeah, you said an internet radio show. Is that a mm-hmm. podcast? And what do you talk about? Well, yeah, it's it's actually a music show. It's kind of vintage. It's just kind of an eclectic, at least my show is kind of eclectic music. And I put together a show. It's It becomes a podcast. It is technically a podcast. This is one long MP3. I sent it off to my sent it off the radio station. And they schedule it to be broadcast, and they make it available as podcasts after that. So, but I, I do a remote show. There's a it's a radio station in Los Angeles that I kind of latched onto I don't, years ago because I like just the variety of music. And so they asked me if I wanted to participate as a DJ there. And so I I now have uh, over the years got a little uh, amateur studio, which is where I'm at right now actually. So I'll I'll transcribe uh, vinyl to MP3. Scratches and all, you know, huh. and uh, also collect uh, MP3s, you know, new MP3s, where whatever music I think will fit, and so, and that's what I do. So, that is so cool. And yeah. this has been bugging me for thirty-one minutes and six seconds now. Who does <laughs> sing that song? That'll be the day. Oh, um, let's see. I think it's Aerosmith. Oh, that's that's uh, Buddy Holly. <laughs> Buddy just, Holly. I knew it wasn't Aerosmith. I think it's Buddy no. Holly. <laughs> yeah, Aerosmith. Yeah, it's a big hit. They did a great cover of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Buddy Holly. Yeah, I knew it wasn't the yeah. Beach Boys. What's your favorite yeah. Beach Boys song? Oh boy, you know the titles are escaping right now. Help um, me, Brenda. Help, help me, Brenda. <laughs> oh, there's uh, a yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, so Brian Williams is a very good lyricist, and uh, there's one song. It's uh, "Till I Die." It's a beautiful song, and then wouldn't it be I can't remember the title right now. It's stupid. Uh, but the um, the movie Love Actually used it at the end. I can't remember the name of the song. Paul McCartney thought it was the best song ever. I, I can't remember the name of it right now. So uh, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be nice or something like that? So anyway, uh, they're both beautiful songs. Uh, Wish they all could be Nevada. <laughs> that's so good. But... No, that doesn't sound right. Whatever. <laughs> Screw it. California um, girls. Oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Paul, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Worst memory from drinking, Paul? Well, one thing I didn't mention before is I was very surprised to have blackouts. And a couple times I, uh, well, I, I don't need to get into the details, but uh, it's just very unsettling for me. So it's it, ironic because it's a memory of not a memory. So Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, very scary, I thought. Did you ever have any moments where you realized, uh-oh, I can't control my drinking? Yeah. Oh, yeah, a lot of them, actually. It's like my wife told me that when I had said something, we were in, again, we hang out in the sunroom a lot, and and uh, she told me something I said, and I thought, wow, I didn't remember saying that, you know? So <laughs> and I didn't think she was lying, so I knew I had, I had blacked out. And uh, that's, really, you, uh, that's really odd, really scary, I think, mm-hmm. that you— and just do stuff and not remember it. So, and what's your plan in sobriety moving forward, Paul? Well, one thing I'm <clears throat> really lucky about. I, I feel like I got like a beachhead right now. You know, <clears throat> what I, I do want to follow up with the smart yeah. uh, recovery. A, I do want to check out AA. I actually, 
a couple years ago when I got the scare, I did check out one AA meeting. It, it just didn't feel right, and I didn't go back. But it doesn't say I'm not slamming. I just didn't fit for me. But so I'm going to do those. I'm still going to check them out. Uh, continue with the RE Cafe. I love that. I love hearing you know what other people are going through, and it really gives me a, a lot of insight into you know that this drinking thing is just but one facet of their lives. So that's mm-hmm. very. Uh, I think I'll do the journaling, like I mentioned. I think that's going to be helpful. So I think that'll... Oh, one thing I, I was going to mention is that I'm lucky to have my wife who was able to... Her previous husband was uh, alcoholic as well. So oh. she has a lot of insight into this and has been very helpful and very understanding. And I, I view that as a kind of a really like a secret weapon I have. Uh, of, uh, you know, I, I feel comfortable talking to her about it and uh, it's really great <laughs> so that that's really where i'm headed right now i'm sure i'll probably uncover more stuff you know as i move on so yeah yeah bring her on board that's great nice job yeah. and in regards to sobriety paul what's the best advice you've ever received well i uh i haven't i hadn't heard it before but i heard it <clears throat> after i quit more re- most recently and, and today is the best day to quit because that's kind of what i was thinking when i dumped out my most recent uh, purging of the liquor, <laughs> it was, you know, why wait? Do it now. And uh, that's why I say that the kind of the guiding hand didn't let me object. It just, I, I'm dumping this stuff out. And so that, I think that's the most uh, fitting piece of advice I've gotten. Yeah, and more on that line, today is the very <laughs> best chance you have to get sober in terms of the progression. I love it. And what yep. parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? Well, I think the most the most significant thing I've found is sharing it with uh, somebody, and I had never done that before. Uh, so like sharing it with my wife, sharing it with my kids. I, I made a point of talking to each one of my kids, my wife, about what's going on there. It was such a relief. And, and the other thing is, you know, be kind to yourself, you know. <laughs> Don't believe what other people tell you about you, <laughs> unless it's good, you know. But uh, yeah. yeah, so... <clears throat> and Paul, before we depart, give listeners your own customized. You might be an alcoholic if line. Well, it's not a it's not a revelation, but I think you might be an alcoholic if you're researching whether you're an alcoholic. It's just seems like a no brainer now. So <clears throat> yeah, that's yep. that's profound though. I mean, it, it, yep. it's just like <clears throat> internal mystery of question: Do I have a drinking problem? And you can solve <laughs> yeah. it pretty quick if you're just yeah. listening to Recovery Podcast. Yeah, there you go. Right. Yep. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Great stuff. Oh, well, thanks for the opportunity. I'm I'm kind of flattered to be invited for this, so thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. Now, if you'd like to get a further breakdown analysis of the interview with Paul, you can actually go to the podcast called After the Elevator, which I think launches Tuesday after the Monday release of this podcast episode. Personalities like Tamara, Garrett, both who have been interviewed on this podcast, do a great job of diving into the interview a little further. But I want to share with you an email that Paul sent me about 32 minutes after his interview. It says, thanks again for the opportunity to be interviewed. As I sit here after the fact, I find myself at ease. And no, it's not a relief because the interview is over. I really enjoyed it and I could have yammered on for another hour. I feel relieved because I was able to talk about my recovery. It's the same feeling when I talk to my wife about it. I can see where AA meetings would foster talking. Also, what caught me by surprise is the comment about needing a hug. In such a short phrase, that captured what I had been trying to figure out about the verbal abuse of my childhood and my second marriage. So the two Pauls on today's podcast got a hug from alcohol, and I know a lot of people listening can relate to that. 
where I also got a hug from alcohol and Paul also got a hug from alcohol is when we talk about it. I encourage you, open up to someone close to you. Burn the ships, per se. It doesn't have to be that dramatic. But keep in mind, no matter what, you're not alone. There is a power with you at all times. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.